Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Came up on the stage with a spring in my step. Did you guys see that? Must be the St. Patrick's Day lights. Tyler said it was a joke before church and he'd change it. I said, no, no, leave it. It looks great. It looks really good. I like the green. Uh, last week, we had a great weekend away with our leadership team. Uh, we, early on when we first started, you know, we had, to, we had to burn a few leaders out to figure this out. But after we burned a few leaders out, we were like, we should do an annual retreat where we all get away together and pray together and worship together and get away to hear the Lord. And, um, and so we were doing that last weekend. So a big thank you to Mike Murray for preaching. I had every intention of listening to it this week and telling you how good you did, and I haven't listened to it yet, so watch for that this week. I'll listen to it this week and tell you how good you did. Uh, and then uh, others that were just covering all the different things, covering classes, covering worship and all of that, uh, we just really appreciate it. Uh, we had a good time away. There was, uh, uh, leading up to it, our leadership team was uh, meditating on the Psalms of Ascent which were the psalms that the Israelites, or the Jews, really would uh, sing as they were traveling up to Jerusalem for the different annual festivals. And, uh, and a lot of, some of them were composed when they were journeying from uh, Babylon back to the homeland. Anyhow, it was a super fruitful exercise, I felt like, for our leadership team to be focused on those, meditating on them. And it just seems like the Lord spoke a lot of really cool things uh, to us through that. And um, and I think I might put together a devotional for like the week leading up to Easter for everyone to participate in that would kind of be along those lines uh, as we ascend the mountain, not to Jerusalem, but we ascend the mountain to Easter. You know, that might be kind of fun. I don't know. Anyhow, one word from the Lord that I uh, that I felt inspired to share with our leadership team was regarding us as a community of faith, really seeking uh, a more full understanding of God. It, especially in the aspect of his holiness. Um, there's a couple of places in scripture where the Lord uh, calls his people to be holy because God is holy. And as, uh, and as people who really want to look more like Jesus, uh, it seems like this would be a, a really good thing for us to talk about. And, um, and I think, especially in our modern age and, and in our, our culture, when we think about holiness, it's easy for us to... Uh, to think of holiness in terms of moral purity. Uh, you know, God is morally pure. He doesn't ever do anything wrong. He never sins. And so we can think of holiness uh, strictly in terms of absence of sin, which is, is part of holiness. God is a morally pure God. He never does anything wrong. But I think our tendency to reduce his holiness uh, to simply moral purity leads to a couple of, of really kind of negative and unintended consequences. One is that we, so holiness in the Hebrew scriptures was a word that communicated that God was set apart or different from the host of other spiritual beings that inhabit the heavenly realms. And so the ancient mindset is that there are, you know, thousands upon thousands, millions of spiritual beings, 
kind of the common word we might use for them now is angels or demons. But in ancient times, they were called gods. They were called Elohim, you know, lowercase gods. And you'll see that in your Bible all the time. Um, and when when Israel made the claim that our God is holy, it meant he's not like these other gods that these other nations are worshiping. He is unique. He is set apart. He is different. He is higher and greater. And they also meant to communicate that he's not like humanity either. He's different. God is other than that. Um, he's morally pure, yes, but he's also a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This was a unique claim about the divine being that the Hebrews had. What a unique idea about God. What a unique idea and so different from the ancient people who surrounded them. Christ's humility that we see in Scripture highlights to us that God is a humble God. A humble God, that's unique as well. The, the creation narrative reveals to us a God who, uh, who collaborates with others, a God who shares his authority with other people. This is another really unique, really different. This God is different than the ideas about God that came from the culture around Israel. Of course, our understanding of the Trinity, the idea that God is expressed in three distinct beings who are other or different from one another, and yet at the same time, God is in perfect unity, perfect oneness within himself. And so the Father, Son, and Spirit are unique, other from one another, but they are also perfectly in unity. I think our idea of holiness should really incorporate all of these things. This is all adds up to that God is, you know, holy, holy, holy. That, you know, the Israelites used to worship and say, who is like our God? It was a rhetorical question. There's no one. There's no one like our God. Who is like him? Not a single person. God's holiness then is on full display in the life of Jesus everywhere. But one story where I think it's really on display is the story of the woman caught in adultery at the beginning of John chapter 8. If you haven't been with us the last few months, we've been working our way through the gospel of John. And, and it just so happened at our leader, leadership retreat that one of our elders, Corey Robinson, made a few really great comments about this story. And I was like, this is so great because I'm preaching on this next week. So I'm just going to take all of your stuff. And we'll talk about that. So credit where credit is due. I don't think Corey's here today to hear it, but you guys all heard. I credited him. So these ideas are not my own. They're all Elder Corey. Um, so in John chapter 8, this is the aftermath of, in John chapter 7, we had the Feast of, of the Tabernacles. And Jesus hasn't quite left Jerusalem yet. He hasn't left the festival um, but before we really get into the story, I want you to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps, and I want you to look at the text, and we're going to do a little bit of interaction here, because I want you to tell me if you notice anything different about, it would be the end of John chapter 7, I think it's maybe verse 53 or something like that, the last verse in John 7, all the way through John chapter 8, uh, I think verse 12 is, the, is where the break is in uh, John chapter 8. Does anyone notice anything different about the text? or maybe a footnote, or something like that. I'm encouraged to see people's eyes down, because that means you're at least, if nothing else, uh, checking the scores for uh, March Madness, or something like that. Um, anyone notice anything? Yes! Tyler said it. Thank you for being brave, Tyler. I don't know if you can say this in church. You look at it, and it's set apart. That section of Scripture is maybe italicized, 
or maybe it's actually removed and put in a footnote, but it's because the earliest manuscripts, and maybe some might say, and witnesses do not include these scriptures. So what is that saying? Well, there are thousands of ancient manuscripts. You know, for the first 1,500 years that Christianity existed, before the invention of the printing press, you got the Bible because people wrote it. And then somebody else copied that and wrote it, and somebody else copied that and wrote it. And because people are writing all of this by hand, there can be some variation from copy to copy. And what this is actually saying is that uh, in the earliest manuscripts, these verses aren't in the Gospel of John. I know it's scandalous. I can't believe I'm saying it. In fact, I was talking to a, a retired pastor friend this week about the sermon, and I was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure if I should talk about this part of it at all. But it feels a little disingenuous to me to preach on a passage and not at least bring this up. Because if you all go home, as I imagine you do every week, and you open up the Bible to what we preached on that week, and you're like looking and reading and wanting to see if I really know what I'm talking about. And if one of you saw that footnote and you thought he preached on this and didn't even mention that, that might reflect poorly on how honest you think I am with you. And so uh, that pastor's advice was, uh, uh, people aren't going to church to go to Bible college. Just <laughs> don't worry about it. And I was like, I respect you. I love you as a friend. I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so we've got manuscripts, and, and it's remarkable in the Christian faith. You can't say this about any other ancient books. We have manuscripts uh, dating back to within decades of the lives of the people who, who supposedly wrote them. One of the oldest papyrus manuscripts we have is called P52. It contains a part of the book of John that some scholars have dated to between 100 and 150 A.D. We imagine that John the disciple died around 100 A.D. or towards the end of the first century. And so that piece of paper is potentially within just a few years or a few decades of his life. Can you imagine that? Uh, St. Patrick's Day is celebrating St. Patrick who lived in the 400s. If you go to Ireland... They have a copy of the Book of Kells sitting in a library at a university. It's from 400 A.D. You can look at the book. You can't touch it. It's under a glass case. But you can look at it from 400 A.D. Isn't that crazy? From St. Patrick. That was my St. Patrick's Day tie-in for you. So anyhow, uh, it's remarkable. So this particular story in the Book of John does not show up in any manuscripts until about the 5th century. Until the 5th century. Gasp. It also, it doesn't show up in any of the early church fathers' uh, commentaries on the book of John. Uh, they, when they, when they write their commentaries on the book of John, you know, the old guys like Origen or, or uh, others like that, they don't write anything about this. They skip right over it. They go from, you know, the end of chapter 7 right to verse 12. Um, and so it really does seem, and there's, there's, I would say wide, if not unanimous, agreement among Christian scholars that this wasn't originally part of John's gospel. And you might hear that, and you might be thinking, what? Well, this casts doubt on everything, doesn't it? I don't, what can I read in this thing and trust, and what can I throw away? Well, not really, because look at the rest of the book of John, or look at the rest of your Bible. How many sections are there like this that are set apart? This is by far one of the most significant ones. The other significant one is the last chapters in the Gospel of Mark. 
that also didn't show up in early manuscripts. But this is it. Everything else, scholars have wide confidence, and there's like a paper trail leading back to the, the second and first centuries after Christ, leading back to within a, a century or even a few decades of the lives of the people who wrote them. It's remarkable. And so don't throw the whole thing out just because this got added in the fifth century. Now, because we acknowledge that it was added in the fifth century, um, what do we do with that? Well, one, I'm pretty excited about that. Because every now and then, and especially in a modern age where people can get all kinds of information from the Internet, you'll hear, hear people making claims all the time that the Bible is like just constructed by one giant conspiracy to enslave people, right? And yet here we have the critics of the text acknowledging that this was added later and then putting it in there for everyone to see. If you're trying to create a conspiracy to enslave people, you don't put your warts out there for everyone to see. You scrub everything clean and you try to pretend like it didn't happen. And so this, is, this actually is a confidence-building realization for me when I look at Scripture and I see things like this. Um, we're not hiding a single thing. Moving on. All right, so what do we do with it? Well, we read it. We read it. And if it doesn't contradict any of the doctrinal truths in Scripture, then maybe we receive it as inspired for, by God for our own spiritual growth and our own benefit. There are some, I mean, I, you know, you can, I remember reading, a, this was a couple of years ago, but probably was the first time I realized this was added later, reading someone who said, you should never preach on this passage because it was added later and it'll undermine the credibility of Scripture. And uh, I read that article a few years ago and I acknowledged it and I'm, gonna, I'm doing it anyways. Um, most experts agree that it wasn't in John's gospel, but there's also pretty wide agreement that this is an account of something that actually happened. You can imagine we have four gospels that have been canonized, and which means they've been agreed on by the church that these are inspired texts by God, and, and everybody agreed on that. It was canonized by everyone who called themselves a Christian at the time, and anyone who calls themselves Christians now would, the assumption would be, you're receiving these texts as inspired. But we know that throughout the years there, and especially in the early centuries, there were all kinds of writings being made, of, of accounts being given, and all sorts of things being put together. And so much of that was weeded out through the canonization process. One of the things that they weeded out right away was, was anything that didn't have roots back to the first century. If we can't track this gospel back to the first century, then we're throwing it out. And that's why different ones like the Gospel of Thomas or Judas or Nicodemus, that's why some of those ones have been thrown out because they just don't pass the test. They aren't rooted back to the first century. Um, I think the reason that this ended up making it into John's gospel, albeit late, is because there was this high agreement among the faith community for 500 years that this was a true story and that it had merit for being a part of the Christian canon of Scripture. That it had something to teach us. That it had value for the people who want to be faithful to God. And I think modern publishers agree with that. Otherwise, the minute that they would have seen that it you know, wasn't sourced the same as everything else, they'd have just thrown it out. But I think there's pretty broad agreement that this is a valuable story. 
that even though it shows up a little later than we wished it would have, that there's that it it, it reveals truth about who God is, and uh, and it's there. Um, so. I'm setting that aside. If you want to talk about that more, I would love to hang out and talk about it more. If you've got questions about how we got our scriptures or you've got questions about what can we trust, what can we not, I would, I would love to talk about that um, because it's a, it's a topic that fascinates me and I enjoy talking about it. So um, anyhow, uh, invitations out there. Uh, what do we do with passages like this? Well, we read it. We read it and we see if it has any value for us. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to the scriptures, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate our minds. We believe that there are things that you want to speak to us today that will change our lives forever. And so we just, we just want to sort of posture ourselves or ask your Holy Spirit to help us to posture ourselves to receive from you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 8. I'll pick it up in verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who'd been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And then the author adds, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus is hanging out after the festival. He starts teaching. A crowd gathers. And then this woman is brought in who is caught in adultery. It sounds like a very compromising situation. Now, I believe, and it's worth mentioning, that adultery does require two people. And uh, many scholars have wondered and critics have said, where is the man in this case? And that's just the history of humanity. The men get away with all kinds of stuff. That's just how that's just how things go quite a bit. Uh, And this is no exception to that. Uh, Anyhow. um, And they come to Jesus and they're saying, look, the law of Moses tells us that we should stone this woman. But then the author adds they weren't asking this because they're interested in following the law. They're asking this because they want to trap Jesus. The point of the law was to rein in the lawlessness of humanity in Moses' day and to teach the people how it looked to be set apart, what it looked like to be different than the other people. And so in regards to adultery, God's people are faithful to the covenants that they make with their partners. They don't commit adultery. God's people don't sacrifice their babies to the god Moloch. God's people are different than the people around them. What a wonderful thing for the babies. The law says to stone them. The law was there to teach us how to be set apart, how to be holy like our God. The Pharisees are at this point using the law as a pretext to accuse or to judge Jesus. And before you think to yourself, how dare they? I do wonder at times how often scripture becomes that for us. Rather than reading scripture so that we might know how to be set apart, how to be more like God. I wonder how often 
we are reading scripture, searching for a pretext whereby we can now judge others and make sure that, I don't know, we, we feel better on ourselves. Rather than the scriptures bringing conviction and repentance and change to your life, you read it and you just become more and more convinced about everything you already knew and you become more and more judgmental towards anyone who doesn't look like you. I really believe the scripture isn't meant to be weaponized to advance our own agendas or to try to trap somebody or to try to show them how wrong they are. Remember Jesus' words. How can you say to your brother, let me help you with that speck in your own eye when you have a plank in, sorry, let me help you with a speck in your eye when you have a plank in your own eye. We cannot forget these words. So they bring this accused woman, and they say to him, what do we do with her? And I imagine the religious leaders are thinking to themselves, because they're trying to trap Jesus, and it's like, look, even in our society that stoning is prescribed by the law, I would imagine that uh, people who were actually teachers who were actually stoning people, like, it's got to just sort of touch on that compassion nerve for some people. And they'd be like, I was all for Jesus until he stoned that poor woman caught in adultery. And where was the man anyways? I mean, I imagine they're thinking, we've got him. Here he comes right into our trap. What's he going to do? He's either got to disobey the law of Moses or he's got to be party to murder. What's he going to do? The story continues and says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, they straightened up. And he said, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. We've seen this before in the book of John, right? People come to Jesus with questions and they're asking these questions and Jesus doesn't answer them. At least he doesn't answer them the way that they want it to be answered. You know, for those of us who might be hung up on how to punish people caught in adultery, Jesus weighing in on this right here would have been super helpful, right? Well, now we know. Now we know what to do. Jesus, can you speak to the legitimacy of our interpretation of the law of Moses? Can you tell us if we're reading this right? He doesn't. Instead, and this is the point Corey made last week, instead he challenges their authority to act in judgment. And I'll add to that, that he challenges their humility. What an interesting answer to people who are seemingly so committed to understanding the word of God and wanting to live by it. And instead of bringing them clarity as to what the text really said that Moses wrote down all those years ago, he challenges their authority, and he challenges their humility. And I'll just say one more time. Let's remember his words. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? At this, verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably the older and wiser ones first, they figured it out. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. 
Think about the trajectory of this event that we've just read about. Jesus is there teaching. A crowd's gathered. The religious leaders bring in this woman. You know, voices are raised. Shouting is happening. This is an intense situation. And the crowd is about to decide whether this is going to be a mob murder or not. I can't imagine that kind of intense situation. I would, I would be running the other way. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near something like that. And when you think about it, you can almost... You can almost feel the hatred, right? And the judgment and the self-righteous indignation. And then when Jesus is done talking, here we have a woman who is alone in her sin. And she's before the very one who would be very justified in throwing that first stone. And yet somehow he has delivered her from every unjust judge that surrounded her just moments ago. Jesus straightens up and he asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replies. This judge who has just gently and resolutely delivered her from death, he's chased away every condemning person, that, you know, you imagine the state in her mind. Here she is. Jesus is the only one left. There's something special about him. Maybe she knows in her soul. I imagine some people did. We know some people did when they saw Jesus. Like, oh, my gosh, this is him. This is the one. He's, he's the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who could lift his hand, throw a stone, and be totally justified in it. I wonder if she still wondered there. Is this the day that I die? And how could I have been so foolish? Wondering if she's safe. Wondering what Jesus is going to say. He opens his mouth and he says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think one of the places that Jesus loves to get us is alone with him. And I think one of the greatest challenges of being a Christian in a modern age with technology and entertainment and busy schedules, one of the greatest challenges for a follower of Jesus, certainly in our society, is being alone with him. I think he loves to get us being alone with him because it's such an oppressive environment when we're surrounded by everyone else and all of their stuff. It's enough my own stuff. When you're around the frenzied crowds and the shouting voices and the guilty hands that are picking up stones to throw at people, that is not an environment where we are going to thrive. But when we can get moments where we're with our Savior in the safety of his presence and where he can ask and we can hear, where he can speak and we can listen, where he just might say something that will forever change our lives. This is such a good place. Maybe we can see evidence of God's design in making sure that this story made it into our Bible somewhere, despite it not being written by John. It's not because the story tells me something that I don't already know. It's not because the story says anything new or, or different than what the rest of Scripture says. But this story gives a powerful illustration. It humanizes what it means 
sorry, it humanizes, I think, in many ways, what it is that makes God different. It humanizes what it is that makes God holy. Imagine what it did for Jesus' disciples if they witnessed this moment. And we assume some of them did because the story is still here being told. Imagine what it was like seeing him in that moment and thinking as someone who's steeped in a, in a, you know, a, a violent culture of judgment, a, a firm religion that has no room for any mistakes without someone having to die, right? I mean, the sacrifices. They saw it there every year. They saw people dying because of their sins. People, animals dying. Animals are people. Animals dying because of their sins. And here in this moment, they see Jesus do what he did, and they start to think, oh, there's a different way to confront somebody in their sin. There's a different way to correct somebody in the error of their ways. There's a holy way to do confession and repentance and forgiveness that doesn't involve stone throwing or cutting an animal's throat. I imagine in some ways they're, they're thinking, oh my God, this is just what humanity needs. What makes our God holy is because he isn't like anyone else in the entire universe. As the creator and the authority over all things, he is also a humble collaborator who shares his authority. He doesn't mind joining himself to humanity in their flesh. He doesn't mind being around us, even entering the depth of our fallenness. And he certainly doesn't mind speaking to us through this divine human partnership that is the scriptures that we have. Even if the human side of that partnership results in a story being added a little later than maybe it should have. This is just another opportunity for the character of God to be on display in his son and then the holiness of God to be on display and magnified through humanity's weakness and humanity's imperfections. I think this story, which could be a perceived blemish on the whole doctrine of inerrancy, I think this story, when I see it, I'm reminded that there's a humble God who is okay with walking in unity with me and partnering with me even when I don't get it right all the time myself. I had a regretful situation this week in a basketball game where I, we had a referee who uh, I just didn't feel like she was giving us a very fair shake. And I complained and things got a little emotional and heated and she completely disengaged from the game to, uh, to verbally discipline me. And although I humbly received her verbal discipline, I have this thought when I do things like this, I have this thought like, man, I sure hope she doesn't show up at church this Sunday. I'm so glad she didn't show up this week. Um, because you know how you feel when you just know you haven't represented Christ well? And you're like, oh, man, I really hope they don't know I'm a Christian. I don't have any Christian decals on my car. And I'm... I'm a very responsible driver, but I just think I might, you know, forget something and, and then someone will see me do something that looks wrong and they'll think, that's what Christians do. That's what their God does. Um, what a relief it is to know that God is okay with being associated with us. That's part of what makes him so holy, so unlike the gods that humanity imagines. What makes God holy? He's slow to anger. He's abounding 
in love. You know, the unique claim of the Christian Bible is that God deals with humanity's sin by sacrificing himself and forgiving us. In one of the prophets, he said to the nation of Israel, uh, come, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. Although your skins, or skins, although your sins are like scarlet, although your skins are like scarlet, darn it. Although your sins are like scarlet, I'm going to make them white as snow. My version of that is like, let's talk about your sin. Guess what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it go away. Let's talk about your sin. What are we gonna do about this? I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, and then I'm going to forgive you. I'm gonna forgive you. It's done. That's it. This is why God is not like the other gods, because he can take care of you. He's bigger than our sin. He's not going to hold it against us. And at the end of the day, he would say to some of us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, I think about it this way. If Jesus had decided that the adulterous woman was going to be snuffed out, there would, she would never have an opportunity to go and sin no more, right? And, and I think in some ways, God's patience, although it can feel scandalous at times, it's all about him giving us an opportunity to get it right. Because the minute that you cut somebody off or you cut somebody out or, you know, you snuff them out as the creator of the universe, that's it. There's no more opportunities to get it right after that. And God is so patient with us. And the same God says to us, be holy as I am holy. And he invites us to be like him. And, and sin no more is a huge part of that. But let's not forget humility. Let's not forget unity. Let's not forget forgiveness. Because holiness without these things as well is not holiness at all.